The difference between this recession and the 07 to 09 recession, there's a couple. One is that was an asset quality question, a credit risk downturn. This is an interest rate downturn. The one common thing, though, is almost every time there's a significant tightening by the Fed, there's a bank failure. Banking is inherently risky. They maybe have different causes of that bank failure at different times, but it just shows that there are many variables that banks have to manage to, to maintain a solid risk profile. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. Today, we're talking to Fannie Mae's chief economist, Doug Duncan, about the housing market, the Fed's decision to raise rates by another quarter of a percentage point, and what the slew of bank failures means for consumers and MBS investors. And speaking of bank failures, let's get on to the news. Big week. <laughs> like yes. we said last week, things move very, very fast. So we spent the last episode talking about underlying financial issues at First Republic, a mortgage and multifamily lender based in San Francisco. And then early Monday morning, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation seized First Republic and sold it to J.P. Morgan Chase. Yep. J.P. Morgan acquired virtually all of First Republic's deposits and assets, but skipped out on buying up the bank's corporate debt and preferred stock. And this will have an impact on multifamily and mortgage lending going forward. So we spoke to a number of residential and commercial brokers about First Republic's downfall. And one broker actually told you this would leave a gaping hole in the market. That's in quotes. Yeah, First Republic held about $23 billion in multifamily loans last year and was actually the top lender in San Francisco in the first quarter, so a big player in this market. They were known for providing ultra-low rates to multifamily owners and developers, especially those who decided to deposit money with them. So the question is, where do these borrowers go now to get, you know, very competitive rates? Right. The same question exists on the residential side. So people went to First Republic because the bank had these super low rates, but brokers over the last few months have been telling clients to, quote, double dip. So get a pre-approval letter from both First Republic and another bank. Because they were worried First Republic wasn't going to be able to close given all of the uncertainty and their stock dropping after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Exactly. It was like a hedge your bets sort of situation. And now First Republic has been absorbed. And the other question is, will J.P. Morgan keep First Republic's office leases? The bank leased more than half a million square feet across New York, L.A. and Palo Alto, all of which are tied to big properties with CMBS loans. So it puts office landlords, you know, at the forefront of being exposed. Yeah, a questionable spot. J.P. Morgan has said it will spend $2 billion to restructure the bank, a process that usually involves layoffs and cutting office space. But we don't really have details on how that's going to pan out quite yet. So between today and last week, I think we've spent enough airtime talking about First Republic. Let's move on to the Fed. We saw the Federal Reserve raise its benchmark interest rate by a quarter of a percentage point on Wednesday. And that was expected. But what was more interesting was that the Fed changed its guidance around future rate increases. Basically, the Fed introduced the idea of pausing rate increases for the first time. Today, our decision was to raise the federal funds rate by 25 basis points. A decision on a pause was not made today. Uh, you will have noticed that uh, in the uh, statement from March, we had a sentence that said the committee anticipates that some additional policy firming may be appropriate. That sentence is, is not 
in, in the statement anymore. We took that out, and instead we're saying that in determining the extent to which additional policy firming may be appropriate to return inflation at 2 percent over time, the committee will take into account certain factors. So we, that's, a, that's a meaningful change that we, we're no longer saying that we anticipate. And uh, so we'll be driven by incoming data, meeting by meeting, and, uh, you know, we'll approach that question at the June meeting. I guess that's some light at the end of the tunnel for real estate owners with floating rate loans that don't have rate caps. Definitely. Moving to distress, I wanted to talk about a story that came out in New York last week. So this 95-unit apartment building in Turtle Bay sold for 90% less than it did in 2014. That is wild, a wild cut. Yeah. So the building at 234 East 46th Street sold for $13 million. And it traded for $69 million in 2014. So, you know, almost a decade in between. It's a huge loss. The former owner was crowdfund investor Prodigy, but it lost the building through a foreclosure. Prodigy had issues too, right? Yeah, The Real Deal had this story in 2020. We called it out as the biggest crowdfunding implosion. All these small-time investors, many from foreign countries, invested about $690 million with Prodigy to buy into Manhattan real estate. But the money basically disappeared. The company stopped responding to messages from investors. Wow. And then they lost this property in foreclosure. On to more earnings. Anywhere Real Estate, that's the parent of Corcoran, Coldwell Banker, Century 21, and Sotheby's International Realty, a lot of residential brokerage brands there lost $138 million in the first quarter. Mm. How does that compare to the company's earnings in the fourth quarter and a year ago? It's actually a dramatic improvement from the fourth quarter when the firm reported a $453 million net loss. The company has made a lot of layoffs and tried to cut costs since then. But it's still worse than the profit it reported a year ago. It reported $23 million in net income in the first quarter of last year. Got it. Okay. And lastly, before we get to our interview with Doug, South Florida is still seeing a ton of capital coming in. Cattle Fumo companies scored a $340 million construction loan from Madison Realty Capital for the Ritz-Carlton Palm Beach Gardens. And that's the largest financing deal we've seen in South Florida this year. Well, what is that project? Yeah, it's one of those hotel-branded residences, so it's 106 condos across three buildings, and the units are asking between 4 and $8 million. The developer said it's already sold about $75 million worth of units. Wow. So, yeah, Palm Beach is still a very, very strong housing market. People still want to buy. Definitely. So on to our guest today, we have Fannie Mae's Doug Duncan, and we recorded this a couple of hours before the Fed announced its rate hike. But as we alluded to, we kind of knew what was going to go down. So here's Doug. We are towards the end of the Fed's two-day meeting, and we should get some clarity on the next rate hike this afternoon. Many have projected a 0.25 percentage point increase, the same boost we saw in March, after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Do you think the most recent collapse with First Republic could mean no rate hike? What are you thinking? Uh, we have uh, the Fed doing their 25 basis point rate hike at this meeting. I, I don't think that's changed. I think what has changed is the thinking about longer term implications of the regional bank issues and really First Republic is representative of a broader class of regional uh, banks, which are heavily invested in uh, commercial real estate. 
uh, at least as a share of total real estate, commercial real estate lending, they're the biggest share. So the question then becomes, will other banks show financial difficulty uh, or will the tightening of credit conditions in order to retain and improve liquidity by those banks be uh, enough to significantly slow uh, economic activity beyond what the Fed already thought was in place? The counterbalancing view to that is that some of the recent indicators that the Fed has been watching for weakening have not weakened. And so there's the market is today a little bit split on whether or not the uh, Fed would, after this meeting, pause. And I saw one of the former uh, governors uh, made a statement today about a hawkish pause, which I think is maybe stretching the limits <laughs> of the English language a little bit. Uh, but I, I think his, his point was that the the Fed, because of those indicators not having weakened, would like to retain a, an upward bias based on how future information comes in, but must be cognizant of the fact that this banking issue could be bigger than they think. I, I went back and looked at a little data thinking about banking problems. And in the, this is not a situation like 2007 to 2009. However, it can take time for markets to reveal other structural flaws. So in that time period between the Bear Stearns failure and the Lehman failure, that was six months between those two kind of things. So that's part of the reason why uh, markets are being cautious and why the Fed may potentially pause, but with a, a continued bias. Uh, toward increases if they don't see improvement in, in the uh, particular indicators. Turning to the home sales market, because we're looking at that as well, if the Fed goes with a rate increase this time, the 25 basis points, and then does decide to pause, how do you think that will affect home sales? Will a pause offer some clarity as to where credit standards will go um, or will head throughout the summer? Well, it gives some clarity. It does say that the Fed has some concern about how credit conditions will change based on the banking issues. So probably not a lot of change uh, in the mortgage space. The, the uh, forward indicators of expected Fed change uh, have gone from maybe three cuts in the second half of the year to maybe two cuts in the second half of the year. So the market's gotten a little more I guess you'd call it hawkish with regard to where the Fed will go. We don't even have two cuts in ours. We only have one cut in December in our expectation because from our view, if the Fed doesn't see a rising concern from the regional banking issue, there it's going to take longer for them to get the reaction to inflation that they're looking for. And so we, we think when Chair Powell says, we will stay higher for longer. That's we're taking him as, at his word there. So in 2021, 20, you know, even early 2022, we had all these ultra low rates that many buyers locked in before increases started rising, you know, in the second half of last year, which have now hurt sales. But prices are falling now, a, 
you know, a little bit across the country. Do you think that that could incentivize sales going forward? Well, our theme for the for the full forecast this year is awaiting improvements in affordability. And it's not just the housing, it's to the entire economy, but certainly uh, that's a focus in housing. So we did initially see some decline in house prices. And of course, house prices vary significantly between different geographies. But as a national average, we saw a, a small decline uh, initially. And then in the most recent month, we actually saw a very small upward tick. Mm. So the supply problem is still there. And the demand pressure is still there. So it didn't take as much of an interest rate move to get people to respond on the demand side as what had uh, initially been thought. So uh, to the extent that we do see a little bit of a downside in rates, if depending on what the Fed says, I would expect to see a little tick up in, uh, in applications for uh, home purchases. So I was reading another Q&A you did a few months ago where you were you mentioned that the Fed owns the biggest bulk of mortgage debt and it's it wants out of that. But regional lenders don't really seem well positioned to pick up the slack there. So what entity do you think might step up to the plate? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's one where we're thinking through. The Fed is the single biggest holder of mortgage-backed securities in the world as a single entity. The banking sector across all banks actually hold more collectively than the Fed does, but as a single holder, they're the biggest. And they have made it a policy statement that they eventually would like to eliminate that portion of their portfolio. So one of the things that you see in the market today is that the interest rate spreads in the mortgage market are very wide. And that's actually a signal that the market is uncertain about who's going to absorb that whole supply. Because to your point, regional banks are not. They have liquidity issues at the present time. And some of them are in the mortgage-backed security space because they bought those securities at lower yields and rates rise, so that drops the value of those securities. So it's not going to be those banks. So the question is, who picks that up? And right at the moment, it doesn't seem to be international investors. It's perhaps more like money market mutual funds uh, or some other uh, some other private investors, but they are going to require higher yields. That will hold mortgage rates higher than they would have been if those yields uh, were to narrow, uh, maybe as much as 100 basis points or a full percentage point. You could see that emerging in the market when mortgage rates went up to about 7.1% very briefly back in November or thereabouts, all of a sudden the stories emerged about lenders requiring borrowers to bring money to the table to buy down the interest rate. Well, the reason they did that was because fixed income investors would not buy mortgage-backed securities backed by 7% mortgages because their view was when the Fed ultimately stopped raising rates and then eased, those loans would all prepay because mortgage rates would fall. And so those mortgage-backed securities would just go away very quickly. So there weren't investors at that yield. Now, that's not the case now. There are some investors that will hold 6 to 6% mortgage-backed securities. So there's some pickup, but the spreads are still very wide. 
Actually, on that, I wanted to ask a question about how the banking turmoil has affected mortgage-backed securities and the market in general. Um, you know, you said that there's been a slight pickup for MBS, you know, debt in that yield, but are investors backing away from MBS debt at all, or is it staying steady? What is that looking like? Well, right now for uh, the regional or smaller banks, there's sort of a reputational risk issue related to it because the failures of a couple of these banks are had significant portfolios of mortgage-backed securities, and some of those are being auctioned, will be auctioned into the market as part of the receivership of those banks. So that's contributing to the uh, wideness of those spreads. The question is, who is willing to pick those up at uh, current yields? And that will be dependent on their expectation of where the Fed ultimately settles with interest rates and what kind of a holding period they could expect if the coupons on those mortgage-backed securities are higher and then rates fall, so refinancing picks up. So it all a lot of it depends on the expectation of the individual investor. What's their time frame the, that they have in mind, and what what yield would they be willing to accept over that time frame? I want to dig in a little bit further to the First Republic collapse. Um, so with J.P. Morgan acquiring the majority of First Republic's assets, you know we've seen significant consolidation in the lending market. How do you think that contraction could impact availability of financing and then as a result, the home sales market? Well, there's a couple of things that, that we learned pretty conclusively in this period. First of all, there are a class of banks that are too big to fail. And I make that statement because the hot money or the money which was very mobile uh, and in many instances institutional or large certificates of deposits moved very quickly to the large banks. That wasn't a play for yield. That was a play for safety. And so that flight to quality to the, to the big banks makes very clear that the market believes they will never, those institutions will never be allowed to fail. That gives them an advantage with regard to the risk that investors view in the marketplace. So that actually we now have kind of a two-tier banking system with one set of banks, a small set that are very large and too big to fail, and all the other ones that there's still some risk uh, associated with them, meaning that raises some costs for them. The second thing that we know is that the big banks are not nearly as good as small and intermediate banks at doing uh, commercial real estate and other local loans because the share of those kind of loans that were in regional banks was very high. So it suggests they're actually better at local uh, and regional lending uh, it, uh, than are those big banks. So there is, there's an incentive to try to level that playing field and keep those regional banks in play because they're very important to local and regional economies. What does it mean for housing? Not as much as you might think from a credit risk perspective, because this is not a credit risk issue. This is an interest rate risk issue. And the delinquencies on 
Fannie and Freddie mortgage-backed securities are very low and have really not changed at all. From a credit quality perspective, there's not really an issue today, which is the thing that differentiates it from the 2007 to 2009 downturn. That was very much about credit quality. So it's, this is about liquidity, which is where the yields comes in because those, those loans that you referred to that were made at very low levels, two and a half to 4%, those led to mortgage-backed securities with very low coupon rates. And when rates rose, of course, that lowered the value on those, uh, on those securities. The spreads are wide in recognition of that. And so that means that mortgage rates will be higher than they would be in a prior period based on those wider spreads. Clearly, the interest rates won't go down as far as they would have gone down given those liquidity problems. You just spoke about interest rate risk. And um, something that I've been kind of looking at is banks like First Republic have been struggling with soaring interest expenses, right? Because they have to pay out more on customer deposits than they did say a year ago, but the yield from their mortgages, the you know majority of their loan book is is still pretty low, and they can't kind of incrementally increase it. How do you think banks can alleviate this problem? And do you see this problem seeping into other banks? I guess do you see it on the horizon? Well, it it really depends on whether the those banks have hedged that interest rate risk or not. For a significant time period, they're paying very low rates on uh, deposits. So their net interest margin was positive, even though the securities had very low yields. Uh, but if you're, if the yield on the security is three and a half percent, but you're, what you're paying on deposits is a half a percent, it's still a good margin, right? Uh, it's when the Fed started tightening and interest rates started to rise. And uh, non-banks started to offer higher yields to depositors, for example, money market mutual funds. Then the deposits started to flow out of those institutions into those alternative credits. And then the banks were forced to start to raise consumer deposit rates uh, in order to maintain liquidity. But as you point out, that meant that the net interest margin was going to decline and so was their profitability. And that certainly is the case, particularly if they have not hedged that interest rate risk. Uh, and you can see which institutions did not hedge well because it, it's showing up in their earnings numbers or if they're one of the troubled institutions. That's the, the key is can they absorb reduced profits in the near term if they haven't properly hedged and fixed their hedging issue or attract deposits at as low a rate as possible. So it's a it's a difficult circumstance for them. We've touched a bit on the similarities and differences between what we're seeing now with these collapses, with the threat of impending recession, um, and what we saw during 2007, 2008, the last crisis. Clearly, we're not seeing banks with bad loans on their balance sheets or a large number of customers defaulting on mortgages. So given that, what are your thoughts around the likelihood of recession? I think I saw most recently that you were thinking soft recession. And then also, do you see, we've spoken about the differences, but do you see any similarities between today and 2007, 2008? So we do have in our forecast a mild recession. We believe that 
uh, it will occur. It's going to be augmented by, by the bank difficulties and the credit availability issue because in order to, to maintain their capital levels, they're going to have to not do as much lending. They've got, to, they've got to rebuild liquidity. And so that means hold deposits at a higher level and not extend as much credit. So that will constrain uh, economic activity uh, and support our view that there'll be a mild recession. The reason we think that recession will be mild is because of housing. Because you saw when rates went from 7.1 down to about 6.3, you saw a burst of application activity at that time. So there's, it gave evidence of still significant pent up demand so that if incomes were to grow, or even if, if they didn't, there's a pool of creditworthy borrowers who are having difficulty competing with cash, for example, today, that if activity slows, rates come down a bit, those folks will quickly enter the market uh, and to buy the home they've been looking at. So this, so far, this um, economic cycle, housing has performed in its historical pattern, which it did not perform in 2007 to 2009. Typically, when the Fed tightens, construction starts to slow, then new home sales start to slow, then existing home sales start to slow, then we're in the recession, and then the Fed eases as interest rates come down, builders start to anticipate the growth of sales and start construction up, then uh, existing home sales pick up as interest rates are lower and qualified households can buy and then new home sales. So it's this cycle is behaving uh, roughly the same as that historical pattern. It's a little bit different in that the existing home supply is still at very low levels. And so there's more weight on new home sales in this cycle than there is typically the case. As you mentioned, the difference between this recession and the 07 to 09 recession, there's a couple. One is that was an asset quality uh, question, a credit risk. Uh, downturn. This is an interest rate downturn. It was centered in housing because of the, the weakened underwriting criteria uh, in, in the housing sector at that time. This one is not centered in weak underwriting criteria in the housing sector this time. The one common thing, though, is almost every time there's a significant tightening by the Fed, there's a bank failure. Banking is inherently risky. It may have different causes of that bank fa failure at different times. But it just shows that there are many variables that banks have to manage to, to maintain a, a solid risk profile. Yeah, there's that saying that the Fed raises rates until something breaks. Yeah, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> so I was looking at, you know, Fannie Mae released earnings, I think it was yesterday, and single family acquisition volume was down from the fourth quarter, about 21%. What factors can you attribute this to in terms of the slowdown? Uh, it's really affordability. It's our awaiting improvement in affordability. When we saw uh, dramatic run-ups in house prices from the middle of 2020 to the middle of 2022, we saw almost a 40% increase in house prices in some markets, uh, uh, less that in others. And then the sudden and very significant rise in interest rates uh, also constrained affordability. So uh, it's really about uh, affordability. Uh, and the entry level 
household, I think now has to pay something on the order of 32% of their income if they're going to buy a house at today's median price and, and the going interest rate. That's the highest in almost three decades. So affordability really is the challenge. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking about building apartments at malls. Tune in then.